This morning we are in 1 Samuel chapter 17. Come this morning to the story of David and Goliath. One of those stories is even as I was reading it and preparing for this, is, uh, it's almost a little nerve-wracking to preach on it. It's so familiar. Everybody has some sense of the story. It may be the best-known, well-known uh, Bible story in the world. Everybody knows about David and Goliath and has a sense of the battle between these two and what went on. But uh, my hope is as we come that we can come with some fresh eyes to an old, old story uh, that God has given to us for our nourishment, for our growth, for our faith. Um, I am going to read verses 31 to 51 in chapter 17. The whole chapter is the story. I'm going to pick out the, the heart of it. I'm going to read it to us and then we'll press into it. 1 Samuel 17, starting in verse 31, the word of God. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him, because of Goliath. Your servant will go and will fight this Philistine. And so Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you're but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear, and he took a lamb from the flock, I went after him, and I struck him, and I delivered it out of his mouth. And if it arose against me, I caught him by his beard, and I struck him, and I killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, All right then, go, and the Lord be with you. And then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put his helmet of bronze on his head, and he clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I can't wear this stuff, or I can't go with these, for I have not been tested. And so David put them off, and he took his staff in his hand, and he chose five smooth stones from the brook, and he put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward, and he came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and he saw David, he laughed. He disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistines said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I am coming to you in the name of the Lord of hosts the God of the army of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. I will give the bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all of this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear. The battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into my hand. 
And when the Philistine arose and he came and he drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag, he took out a stone and he slung it. And he struck the Philistine in the forehead and the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. And David prevailed over the Philistine with his sling and with a stone and he struck the Philistine and he killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. So David ran over, he stood over the Philistine and he took his sword, he drew it out of its sheath and he killed him. And he cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we come to your word this morning believing that it is living and true because you are a living God and you reign. Father, we pray that as we come to your word that you would speak to us, that you would speak to our hearts and our minds, that you would saturate us with the truths that are here, that you would capture us with the truth of who you are and how you battle in the midst of our struggles. Father, draw near and speak your truth to us that we might be changed, that our faith may grow, and that you may be glorified. For we ask and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Philistines have come out again to make war on Israel. And they do this regularly. In Israel's history, they did battle with the Philistines many times. And so once again, the Philistines have drawn out, and this time, they have fielded a great champion. They have brought forward a great champion of Gath to stand for them. I don't know, it's like one of those, do you ever wake up in the morning and find that the Philistines have gathered again? I mean, there are days you feel that way. Days you wake up and you find the enemy is ranged against you once again. You find they have a champion. And in your life, who knows what that champion is that comes against you. And you can name your own Goliath in that sense. But there is again and again in the lives of believers those things that we face. In this time, there is a literal army. There is a literal Goliath, a literal giant. And it stands before Israel. They wake up again and here they come. Goliath, we're told, is from Gath. We're told he's a descendant of Anak. You have to go back to verse 4 to get this. This is part I didn't read. You jump back to verse 4 in chapter 17. Goliath is a descendant of Anak uh, from the area of Gath. If you know your Bible history, there is a group of men, a lineage in that area, who were known basically as giants. Men of great stature, big guys. You know, I don't know what you conjure in your head in terms of giants. I don't think it's like some of the fairy tales. I think we're talking about very large men. I read through commentaries. I I mean, I went looking. How big is this guy? And I went looking, and you get different, you know, it depends on whether you use this measure or that measure, whether you read it this way. But the shortest guy I found that he said was at 6'9". That was the shortest. But it went up to the most of them said, most of them concurred around 9'6". There were one or two of them that wanted to put him a little bit taller than that. So this is where I would say, I don't know, when it comes down to the measures of these things, I don't know, but the one thing we know is this guy is huge. He's a giant. I don't know if you've ever seen, um, one of my favorite films is uh, The Princess Bride. And and Andre the Giant is is an actor in the movie, uh, Fessig. And, you know, you'll see these other guys, and he truly is. He's just a large... 
a large man. You get one guy jumping against the door trying to break it open. He throws himself into it four times, and he's like, Bessie, I need your help. You know, he comes walking over, and he's like, you know, the door falls, and he goes running through. He's a big guy. There, there, is, there is a group, and I don't know if you go, go back, there is a, a lineage of men who are huge. They come out of Gath. They've been known through, through biblical history. So this guy comes out on the field, and he is fully armored. Verses 5 to 7 and verse 17, this guy is fully armored. So you've got to imagine, he's at minimum six foot nine. I'm about six foot. So you've got about, you know, full head and shoulders above me. You know, maybe nine foot six. We'll just throw him up there. He's got a helmet of bronze. It says he has, a, he has armor and a chest plate of mail. He's got bronze leggings. So he's armored from foot to his head. He's got a shield. So he's got his arm. And it's the second thing. He's got his sword strapped to his side. We know because David borrows it later. And and he's got a javelin, and we're told this javelin is made up of a beam that's like the size of a weaver's beam. I don't know how big that is, but it's big. And it has the head on this spear, weighs by itself about 15 pounds. And if you figure, this guy is that big, you know, the heft of his weapon. So here's this guy, sword and shield, javelin, armored from his head to his toe, this imposing figure who comes out to Israel every day, twice a day. And says, bring your best guy. Let's settle this thing like gentlemen. Let's settle this thing between champions. You send out your best guy. If he wins, we'll submit to you. If I win, you submit to us. Day after day, he defies the armies of Israel. He mocks them. He taunts them. Israel's army is raided out against them. Israel has... has, uh, has, uh, gathered over and against them. They're standing on the opposite side of the field in a hill again, and they're afraid. They're gripped by fear. If you look at verse 24, we're told that Israel is afraid. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, they fled from him, and they were much afraid. It's one of the characters in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, much afraid. Here's Israel is down to a man. Their entire army is much afraid. And they stand in fear of this guy. He's imposing. I don't know if you're standing there and you see this guy. You know, who's going to come and fight me? Israel stands cowed before him. And you've got to remember, they got some pretty big guys. Saul, as he was chosen for king, you remember it said that he stood head and shoulders above everybody else. He was a big guy. You remember David's oldest brother, Eliab, that when Samuel came looking to anoint the next king, he came and as he came before Jesse's family, he says he bumped into Eliab first and he thought... We're told he thought in his head, surely this is the guy. You know, it doesn't describe him for us, but it tells us he was an imposing guy, a a king. So they've got some good guys. Saul is no small man. Eliab is no small man. They've got their share of warriors. But this standing offer, verse 25, Saul has put out so that he doesn't have to fight. Saul puts out an offer and says, The guy who will come and kill Goliath can marry my daughter, have great wealth, and will no longer have to serve under the king. And I don't know if that's free from military service or paying taxes or whatever it is, but he's free from standing offer. If someone will step up and and answer this challenge, 40 days, there's no champion. No one steps forward. No one will 
face Goliath until David shows up on the field. And the story just has David is on an errand. His father, he's home watching sheep. He comes part-time and plays music for Saul who has headaches and problems. And so David spends part of the time with Saul and part of the time home watching sheep. And his father sends him on his trip back. He says, bring this, this food to your brothers. David comes to the field. He shows up one day. Here's the armies of Israel. Here's the armies of the Philistines. And he happens to be standing there when Goliath takes the field and starts taunting Israel. Starts talking trash. Right? Starts talking trash at Israel. Guys know all about it. It's half the battle, isn't it? Half the battle is the trash talking. David will do a little of his own before it's all over. Uh, as he gets, says, oh yeah? <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll see. So there's this, he comes out and David hears this guy and he can't believe his ears. He can't believe, you know, this is the state of things. Israel's standing here and just watching this go on. And so in verse 26, David opens up a whole new world. David says to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of a living God? David comes with this worldview. David shows up. He, he's not a warrior. He's not in the army. He's, got three, he's like one of eight boys, and three of them are in the army, and he's part of the lot that's still at home. He's not a warrior, and he stands there, but he has this worldview. Who is this that defies the armies of a living God? David's worldview is saturated with a living God, a God who reigns over heaven and earth, a God of the nations, a creator, a king, a God who called this nation into being, a God who has chosen them and is doing a work in the midst of them. And David shows up and for some reason the armies of Israel and the king himself doesn't seem to have this saturated worldview. They see Goliath and his God, they see the outward appearance of this man and they're afraid. They don't see a spiritual side to this thing. They don't have a vision of God. They don't see God. So his brother, you know, Saul, David steps forward and he says, all right, you guys, I, I will take care of this thing. His brother discourages him. His brother laughs at him. His brother's angry with him. He steps forward in verse 32 and he says, no, let no heart fail. This is where we started reading. Your servant is going to go and fight. And the first thing Saul says is, you can't fight this guy. You can't fight this guy. He, you are young and inexperienced. You're green. Right? That's part of David's problem. He turns out to be something of a warrior in the life of Israel. But he's young. He's green. He's inexperienced. He's not in the army. He hasn't fought. He's like, you're going up against this Goliath. He's been a soldier, he says, since his youth. So he's older. You figure this guy, this imposing, his muscle and his, his stature is an experienced and solid, proven warrior, armored from head to toe, and you know, this young guy, I don't know how old David is here, but he's, he's young and inexperienced, and Saul takes one look at him and says, I don't think so, dude. Are you, are you crazy? His brother laughs at him. The king balks at the idea. Goliath mocks him. But David's answer is informative. Verse 37, he says, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Right? David 
David's answer to Saul, he tells a little story about shepherding. He says, shepherding is not as simple as you make it out to be. I may just be a shepherd, but I've dealt with my... He gives a little bit of a resume, you know, a battle experience. It wasn't, wasn't Philistines, but lions are nothing to be sneezed at. Bears are pretty intimidating. I have had my share of battles, and here's what I know. God, David's answer to Saul is this. God is faithful. I know Yahweh. I have walked with Yahweh. I have seen Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, work. I have seen him show his power in many ways in my life and in my experience. I'm not afraid. God is God. He doesn't change. I've seen him deliver me before. He will deliver me again. Right? God delivers his people. I've seen it. I've experienced it. That's where I'm going. We need to see this is where David shines over Saul. As we talked in the last couple of weeks, how Saul is rejected and David isn't. Both of them are great sinners. And that sermon's coming as we look at David's sin. Saul was a great sinner. David was a great sinner. There's something about David in both his repentance, but also in just his walk with God. Walk with God. Saul didn't even know who the prophet in Israel was. Remember when he was called? He didn't even know who Samuel was. He doesn't seem to have an inner life. He doesn't seem to have a spiritual life. David, on the other hand, shows up. And his whole imagination is saturated with a living God. He knows him. He loves him. You read the Psalms. David, some of those Psalms I'm sure he wrote while he was shepherding. Some in his kingship, but in the Psalms reveal a man who knows God, who loves God, who walks with God, has deep and powerful experiences with God. And this is the contrast, a man after God's own heart, in the contrast of this faithful, faithless people who seem to have fallen out of communion with God. They're not in touch. They don't seem to know Him. They don't seem to understand his power. They don't understand his presence. They don't see how God factors into the battles. Like some of us, we go to work. How does God factor into our work? Or how does God factor into our marriage? How does God factor into this problem that we have or this whatever the issue is? And, and sometimes there's this, this separation where for some reason there's my going to church and my religious thing that goes on and everything else we've got to deal with. And I'll figure it out. You know, David has this sense, and it should saturate all of us, this imagination that is saturated with the living God. And as he faces this, he understands that the battle will ultimately be won ever before he ever reaches the field. I mean, we just see that this battle was won in the heart of David before he ever got to the front. And I think this is true in the Christian life. It's something that we need to grasp and to understand that most of our battles are won in private. David's heart and where he was when he reached the front was everything. Right? Do we see that? What was in David's heart? What was in David's mind? What saturated his imagination when he faced this giant of a man? What made him different than the rest of Israel? And his brother, who was head and shoulders taller than he was. 
Right? This battle was won in the heart and mind of David as he walked with God, as he shepherded sheep, as he prayed and worshipped and grew to know and to love this God and in communion with him. And as he, as he engaged in all of his battles with this knowledge and relationship with God, that he arrives at the front and his heart and his mind are prepared to trust in God, to look to God, to seek his power. Proverbs 21.8, it's 28.1, it's there in your bulletin at the end of the first point. It says, a wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. Those who are in Christ, those who know Christ, those who walk close with God, those who are people of faith, those who are who are right with God, in communion with God, connected with God, walking with God. Those who are the righteous, he says, are bold as a lion. And the battle is won there. First John tells us the victory that overcomes the world is even our faith. Nurtured in private. Where is your faith nurtured? It's nurtured here this morning, I hope. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, but it is nurtured and it captures our hearts and our minds. If you don't take the meal that you've prepared here and go digest it somewhere, you know, whether you hear it here or read it yourself or however you take it in, it has to be assimilated. Walking with God is the source of our strength. Walking with God is the source of David's strength as he shows up on this field. His experience of God's grace awakens trust and confidence. And so, anyway, he answers, God, he answers Saul with this, God is faithful. I know God. He's been with me. He is still with me. And the day is ours. Saul finally relents, says, all right, you can go. But take my armor. All right? And it's kind of comical. You can see Saul is a big guy. I don't know how big David is, but you, they're never described as big. He's but they put this armor on him that you could just imagine is, is too big for him and strap on a sword. I don't know if David's ever swung a sword before. He's got his shepherd's staff. He's got a sling. He's got his things in field. I don't know that he's ever swung a sword before or tried to maneuver in armor. You've got to be trained to maneuver in armor and to know how to use it and to fight it. And you have to wear it. Part of the testing of it is you've got to wear it and to become strong in it. You know, you just put on 50 pounds of metal. So David puts this stuff on and he says, I can't do this. This is not me. It's not how I do it. It's not how I've done it. And he's not even putting it off. I bet later on he wears armor. But he's got he's to learn that. He says, I've got to go with what I know. So he walks out on the field. Here's this. He puts off the armor and he comes walking out. And this is the, this is the contrast that should be painted for us on this field. This great, hulking, brute of a man armored and shining in the sun from head to toe with his sword and his great spear standing out there and David wearing his shepherd's clothes. Uh, he's got his stick. He's got a staff. I mean, Goliath laughs at his stick. He's got his stick and he's carrying a sling. I don't even know that the giant saw the sling. He dismisses it. So here's David, this green young guy standing there with a stick and a string, you know, and this great hulking brute. So in verses 42 and 43, we see this, and the Philistine looked down. He looked and he saw David and he disdained him. He's just a youth. He's young. He's inexperienced, ruddy and handsome. You know, I can imagine this battle-scarred Philistine. He's not ruddy and handsome. He's scarred and brutal. He looks at this good-looking young kid standing there in his cloak and laughs, mocks. Are you joking? 
Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? David is outmatched. That's exactly how God likes it. From Genesis to Revelation. We don't like being outmatched. We're not comfortable being outmatched. We like control. We like being on top. We, need, we like to know that we're strong. We like to know where we have the edge. We like to act in the area of our strengths. We like to work in the areas of our expertise. We like that kind of thing. And that's what makes it hard for us to walk by faith and not by sight. Because in the spiritual realm, it's totally opposite. In the spiritual realm, which bleeds into every single day, God likes us outmatched. This is how God likes it. Remember the story in Judges chapter 7, the story of Gideon and the judges. And Gideon's on the field. He has to face the Midianites, and he's got an army behind him. He's got 32,000. They're not always able to field this kind of army. Gideon has an army of 32,000 men as he faces the Midianites. And he has this conversation with God, and God tells him, you've got too many men. I don't want, I don't want to win this battle with this many men. I would like to do this with fewer men. I'm sure, I don't know how Gideon feels about the whole, there Judges 7-2 in your bulletin. The Lord says to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into your hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying my own hands have saved me. This is a great danger, and what God wants to deliver us out of, that we don't have this sense of boasting that our own hand has saved us. So God likes to whittle the odds down. He says, with these three hands, I don't know if you remember, he whittles them down, whittles them down, whittles them down. It comes down to the way that they drink and how they take in water. And he says, with the 300 that drank this way, now we'll do it. Right there in verse, it's in your bulletin, 770. He says, with these 300 men, I will save you. And then you will know that the salvation is mine. Then you will know the victory is mine. Then you will know that the power and the glory and the work is of God and not of yourselves. Right? That's gospel language. That's Pauline language. So that you will know that it is of the Lord and not of yourselves. Lest any man should boast. And here it is in the midst of it. Pink, A.W. Pink says, The instrument chosen seemed to natural wisdom and military prudence a weak and foolish one. Utterly unfitted for the work before him. Ah, it is just such that God uses God chooses the weak, 1 Corinthians 1. He says, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. I mean, do you see it? And this is, and so Paul, what does he say? So I will boast all the more in my weakness. God wants us to the place where no human being can boast in his presence. To deliver us from pride, to deliver us from self-confidence, to deliver us from self-dependence into a confidence that there is a living God. To deliver us into a God-confidence, to deliver us into to hope in him and, and not in my expertise, in my own strength, in my own gifts and facilities. I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness so that the power of Christ might rest on me. We need to figure this out in our own lives. This, I think, is the heart of this passage and the heart, really, of the Bible again from the beginning to the end. I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. Only one power can rest on you. You can trust and hope and lean into your own strength 
where you can trust and you can hope and lean into and discover the power of Christ, the power of God. Which is where as Israel stood before Goliath, they trusted and leaned in their own strength and David comes along with a whole different worldview. That the power of Yahweh, the God of Israel, might rest on him is his hope and his deliverance as he enters into this whole thing. Yahweh will give you into my hands. Verses 45 to 47, David's answer to Goliath is longer than the, the description of the battle. Because this is the battle, right? You get this 45 to 7, his speech to Goliath as he, as he trash, trash talks a little bit back. Goliath says his little bit about how I'm going to feed you to the birds of the air and the animals of the field. And David says, yeah, well, you come with your sword and your spear, but I got the God of the universe, right? The God of Israel. I've got the God of the nations who is on my side. And it's you who are going to be food for carrying for the animals of the field. So he trash talks a little bit back. He comes, but here's the battle. He says the battle, verse 47, this is all going to happen so that the earth may know that there's a God in Israel, that this assembly, this church, this people of God would know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear. For the battle is Yahweh's. The battle is the Lord's. The battle belongs to God. He wants the earth to know. But he also wants the church to know. And I think that's really important again as we come into this. That this passage is written for us. He says this assembly, this ecclesia, this gathering of God's people. Yes, God is going to do this so that the earth will know. And there is a sense in which God does reveal his holy arm and his power at the right time to the nations. And he reveals it here in this context. But he does it for the establishment of the faith of his people. This Israel that is hanging back in fear. The church of God that is hanging back in fear. The church is not stepping out. It sees the things that is against it. It sees the powers that are. And and the church that is afraid to step out. Because it doesn't have the right imagination saturated with the power in the presence of a living God. And so he says, God is going to do this so that this assembly, this Israel, would come to know their God. Would come to see Him and experience His power in real ways as we step out. You guys are looking at the outside. God is looking at the inside. The battle belongs to the Lord. Let's just talk about a few applications as we come out of this. Because I think there are tons of them that is already we should have touched on as we see David. And the battle is over very quickly. David tells him, the battle belongs to the Lord. You think the battle is in your hands. You even think the battle is in my hands. The battle is in neither of our hands. The battle belongs to God. If God wants the victory to happen, then God is going to do it. So he makes his little speech. And then we're told that Philistine came at him. David ran at him. He took his stone and he slung it and he hit the giant and knocked him down. It's that quick. And the sling, and and well, we want to see that David, that this isn't a story about passivity. This isn't a story about um, standing back and letting God do it. This is a story about, not passivity, but about dependence. I mean, David's sling is a real weapon. The sling of the shepherd, a sling, they actually have, like, you'd have a, a contingent of archers in your army. 
In a lot of armies, they had a contingent of slingers. That they literally were, they were a ranged weapon that you could use. And the stone was two to three inches in diameter. Had a little heft and a little weight to it. And when you would put that in a sling and swirl it around, I, I went water skiing this weekend. And, and the, the part you love the most, but it's also the most dangerous, is when the boat turns on a dime and you're on your skis and it whips you. Ever seen that happen? Have you even been in the boat where we want? The boat turns and the skier is just, you're whipped all the way around. By the time you're over here, that's when I fell. All right, I was, at, I was at the full range of that whip. I don't know how fast you get going out there, but there, there, is, this, there is this physics, uh, geometry or whatever it is in the math, that when it reaches this, I told you, I'm a, I was a philosophy and religion major. So when it, when, it, when it reaches that part of the, you know, two or three of those things around, it reaches that part of the trajectory, and you let go a stone that has some heft and weight to it, and you hit a man in the forehead, you can kill him. There's no doubt in my mind, you could kill him. He hits this big guy, he doesn't kill him, but he stuns him. And he falls down, and David doesn't waste any time. It said he had no sword about him, so he runs over and he borrows the guy's sword to finish the job. But the battle is over in a heartbeat. And the glory is God's as he comes, because he's not trusting even in his sling or in his stick. He's not trusting. He comes against this guy that God will enable him, that he will establish the work of his hands. He will use what David can do and bring about victory. He will cause a stone to fly true. He will cause it to have enough of the right effect. I mean, if it hit a little bit lower, it would have hurt, but just made him really mad, right? But it hits him just right to bring him down, just right. And the providence and the power of God to bring him down. And the battle is over. You know, I think about this of all the things I struggle with in my life and all the things that we face. And I know this is often the application jumps out. Who are your giants and what are the... And I think there is a legitimacy to that because it's a worldview. It's a worldview that God looks... Man looks at the outward. God looks at the inward. Man looks at the outward, but God has a spiritual view of things. He has a different view of things. And men of God and women of God have a different view of things. And in our lives, we can look at the outward circumstances. And I think it is a real application to say there are things in life that are really intimidating. Problems that we face. Bosses that we have to work with. Illnesses that we have to fight. And things that we have to endure in the face that look huge, look powerful, look overwhelming. The Bible says God gives us grace sufficient. He gives us grace sufficient. We live in a world that is saturated by the presence of a living God. He made it. He upholds it. He owns it. His power holds it together. His power makes things happen and accomplishes things. He still intervenes. He still fights. The battle is the Lord's. We need hearts and imaginations as a first application that are, that are not full of Goliath, right? Israel is a quaked in fear. Their imagination is full of this imposing warrior. And their eyes, their view is filled with this guy. We need men and women who will look away to the hills from where their help comes from. And their help comes from the Lord who is the maker of heaven and earth. The God who is able with a word to overcome. We're to fix our eyes on Jesus and to be still and know that He is God. And to have 
to have such, just like David, to have such, to win the battle is off the field. It's to walk with God in such a way, to live in communion with God in such a way that our hearts and our minds and our imaginations are saturated. Our worldview is saturated. That is alive with the presence and the power of a living God. So that when we face those battles, we walk by faith and not by sight. We believe in a world where one man can, one person can bring about a rout. You remember with Jonathan, he said to his guy, and he said, you know, maybe the two of us should go over there and probe the enemy lines. And, you know, if they call us up, then, you know, it's going to happen this way. And God used Jonathan and his armor bearer to cause a rout. Now God has whittled it down to one guy. David, he uses David as he slays Goliath, causes an entire rout of the entire Philistine army. Now think about that in the life of the church. One person can cause a rout, can start the kind of ministries that change Hickson, that change the future of, of the ministry of this church for decades, where, where as, as people step up, one person who has this God-saturated imagination for what he can do, what he can accomplish, and we stop looking at ourselves and making excuses, you know, about whatever, but, but to see that if I step forward, it just may be that God will do something really surprising, that God will bless, that God will fight the battle for us. It's not the strongest person. It's not the best equipped person. It's the person who walks with God, knows his power, and who advances in faith, believing not in what he can do, but in what God can do, which leads us to a life that is saturated with prayer. If the battle belongs to the Lord, then let's seek that victory from him. You know, I've said this before. I think I wrote it in the last Hilltopper, you know, that we, we tend to get together and spend two hours organizing when we get, should get together and spend two hours praying. If the battle belongs to the Lord, and I'm not saying, you know, that, that the organizing and the planning and the work is not need to be done, but it, it should not be done to the exclusion of a prayer-filled, God-centered, God-hoping, trusting, dependent Life and ministry. Life saturated with prayer. Life saturated with worship. Which is why we gather this morning. Because when all is said and done, it is God who saves us. When all is said and done, it is the power of God. And nothing that we brought to the table. Not by sword and spear. The battle belongs to God.